Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. On average, six people die from opioid overdose in Ohio every day. The problem has grown over the last two years due to an increasing presence of fentanyl in our state. Here to talk about the problem and strategies to address it in our community is Dr. Sean Ryan. Dr. Ryan is with the University of Cincinnati, their emergency medicine. He's also the president and CMO of Brightview Treatment Centers, and he's the president of the Ohio Society of Addiction Medicine as well. So, Doctor, welcome. Thank you. Dr. Ryan, can you share with us how prevalent fentanyl is in the drugs coming into our area and and why that's accelerating the loss of life in Ohio. Unfortunately, what we know is that uh, many of our patients are actually being exposed to fentanyl, either intentionally or unintentionally, often not knowing uh, if they have opioid use disorder, what it is exactly that they're ingesting uh, or injecting. And so in our treatment organization, uh, in the multiple sites that we run in Cincinnati, we're actually seeing 90-plus percent of patients exposed to fentanyl prior to admission. Wow. How long is this? How long has this trend been happening? I think we've seen a substantial uh, change in that over just the past uh, maybe year and a half or two. I can remember looking at toxicology reports probably about three years ago and starting to see a little bit of it, um, but but definitely not noticing and had no reason to be you know kind of run the numbers on the issue. Um, but over the probably the past two years, we've seen it just steadily creep up um, to the point where it's at now. Can you put this in perspective for us in terms of why that's so important? What's the difference, I guess, between fentanyl and heroin? Well, we know that the death rate uh, has been climbing uh, steadily over the past couple of years. In fact, unfortunately, it seems to be skyrocketing. And we have seen that that curve, that upwards uh, curve in the graph, has been paralleled to the fentanyl seizures uh, in the in the law enforcement literature, and so um, although we, we can't make a you know 100% correlation, we know that there is a significant uh, parallel or a significant correlation uh, between the uptick in fentanyl seizures, fentanyl exposures, and mortality. So, in summary, we know that the exposure to more fentanyl or fentanyl-like products. Uh, is increasing the death rate in people with opioid use disorder. Would you say that fentanyl is more addictive than heroin? I don't know that we can make that classification. Um, You know, the chemical itself 
and to be clear, we need to be very specific about what chemical dependence versus addiction is. So a person can be physically dependent on any medication, um, even insulin, and uh, fentanyl may have a trend towards a higher uh, dependence on opioids or maybe related to that. Um, but addiction is basically when a person has a dependence on a chemical and it destroys their lives. So I don't know that we can actually use the, the scientific definition uh, appropriately and describe fentanyl as more addictive. But oftentimes, users are drawn to fentanyl. Even though it's more deadly, they're drawn to that. Can you explain that phenomena? Sure. Uh, in trying to understand addiction, there are you know, patients in all phases of their addiction, you know, early, and, uh, early testing, active addiction, uh, and then there are patients who are in you know, somewhat of a maintenance phase who are basically using opioids of any type uh, to just kind of continue their lives, not to seek the high. So, and again, I'm, I'm generalizing. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is that, yeah, patients that are in their most active part of their addiction where they're actually seeking a high, they may seek that more potent opioid, whether it's fentanyl or one of the analogs, in, to, in order to achieve that higher high. But what we know from the literature uh, is that, that, and we're learning more all the time, is that because of the potency and the potential um, mortality or death associated with, a, with the um, opioid analogs such as fentanyl, uh, patients actually, some patients will seek it and some patients will actually avoid it. So it, it's not a, a one-size-fits-all answer. Um, what we have understood and come to understand is that some patients will seek that higher high, but many patients will also uh, avoid it because of the potential risk. How can they avoid it? I mean, how, how do they know if they're getting something that's maybe authentic or pure heroin or a pure, uh, really, an opioid, um, or those that are, uh, you know, kind of manufactured and sold illegally? Right. So despite what some of our patients tell us, and despite the urban legends of it's this certain color or that certain taste, or the, you know, X smell or whatever it is, the, the properties that have been described to it on the street, uh, we know that that's actually not true. So with actual scientific testing, uh, one can tell what it is they are or are not receiving. And, uh, you know, patients are often not privy to those kinds of tests. So in general, they basically don't have any idea uh, what it is that they're buying on the street. Often the dealer that's giving to them doesn't even know what they're selling um, it, because it's been compounded with other things so many times and they don't know where they got it. I mean, it's just the, the, the chain of events that leads to a user finally getting the drug absolutely prevents them from understanding or knowing exactly what they're getting or what they're buying into. Very recently, we were exposed to a new product that is, in essence, the equivalent of an EPT test um, for these drugs to test for the presence of fentanyl. Are you familiar with the test strips? I am. So what would you think of utilizing that as a possibility to test prior to use? Pros and cons. Sure. Uh, I think that there, there are many pros about patients understanding what it is that they are choosing to use. So when you talk to patients, they'll, you know, before actually pills starting to synthesize, and I'm not sure if everyone's familiar, but at this point, a lot of the drug manufacturers, not legal ones, but the illicit drug manufacturers, drug dealers, 
they bought pill presses and they're manufacturing these opioids and making them look like what people had historically trusted as something manufactured by a pharmaceutical company. The reason patients trended uh, towards using, tended to use um, those things that they knew were actually Percocet or Oxycontin is because they knew what they were getting. I actually liken it uh, to the discussion about drinking alcohol. In general, when you go get a drink, uh, you can find out or you already know what the general percentage of, of alcohol concentration is in that wine or that beer or that liquor. But in, in drug use, obviously, as I just described, nobody has any idea. But patients do prefer to know because despite some of the rumors and the urban legends that everybody is just trying to get the highest high they can get, that's actually not true about most patients. And so we know that patients, if given the opportunity or given the information, uh, they may avoid the more dangerous drug or use it more carefully. And so I think that test strips that would allow the patients to have the information to make the appropriate decision would be a positive. Can you share a little bit of insight for our listeners about how these drugs actually make it into our country? So unfortunately, there's, there's multiple routes. Um, we know that illicitly manufactured fentanyl and other analogs are being shipped from Mexico. Uh, they're actually coming in the mail from many countries, including uh, China and other uh, countries surrounding China. Um, and they're also being manufactured in, uh, in illicit uh, labs here in the United States. So because the demand is so great, uh, unfortunately, for our country, uh, the route of these opioids, fentanyl and other, you know, heroin, fentanyl and other opioids, um, the routes are very complicated and multifactorial. And so, you know, one of the issues that is often discussed is, is whether we focus on the supply or the demand side of the issue. Um, my answer is we focus on both sides. Um, but at this time, knowing what I know, it seems that the, that the demand side, the, the desire of people with opioid use disorder is actually the stronger factor. So there's some legislation in place to uh, try to control uh, the shipments that are coming uh, into our country through the mail. Um, you're probably familiar with Senator Portman's um, piece of legislation that he has proposed, right? Yes. Yeah. So what do you think the likelihood of something like that succeeding, one that makes them register all of the details of the package so that it can't be just a package that's just shipped in with no, um, you know, uh, no idea of who shipped it and, and what the contents are? I think it is an important step. Uh, as I described, in a multifactorial solution to this. Um, I've had discussions with patients who say they've been able to order any manner of drugs, you know, opioids, benzodiazepines, stimulants, whatever, in the mail through fairly obvious mechanisms online that I would never have known to look for if I hadn't talked to the patients about it. And so I think it's an important route to close down. So I support the legislation uh, because, as I described, there's just way too many unmonitored conduits of drug entry into the uh, country at this point. What proactive steps can be taken uh, by our communities to protect against the fentanyl that is just destroying many communities? Well, uh, that's a, it's a really complicated question. I'll try to summarize this in a few points. Obviously, prevention is key. So all of the appropriately uh, evidence-based prevention measures, a lot of which were delineated in the Surgeon General's report um, on this issue, 
uh, need to be understood and propagated throughout this country. You know, don't start, I guess, is the right way to simplify that. Uh, secondarily, if we can drive down the demand by increasing the amount of treatment available for those who are seeking it, then that is one route to you know, kind of really decrease the fentanyl and other related drugs flooding into the country because uh, we will reduce the, the desire uh, as, from the public for, for such chemicals. And, and then finally, um, I, I think it is a, an, an appropriate and uh, interesting option to supply the, again, the, what we described before, supply the patients who are using these medications and illicit drugs uh, inappropriately with more information on what it is that they're actually uh, receiving. What about prescribing practices? We've, uh, in our state, Governor Kasich has uh, passed, uh, put through some legislation that limits the amount that physicians can prescribe. How effective would you speculate that's going to be? Well, again, a pretty complex question. We continue as a society to prescribe too many opioids. So, you know, the pendulum swung about as far as it possibly could, given all the factors related to pain scoring and liberal prescribing and, and all of the things that have been in, in the news um, and other factors that haven't been discussed. So we do, we do need to reduce opioid prescribing in this country in general. I think there's been a lot of educational efforts by different societies, both specialties, uh, such as orthopedics, emergency medicine, et cetera. There's been other you know, kind of broader societies, the state medical associations, Ohio, Kentucky, et cetera, who put out a lot of guidelines on education. And we have seen a significant reduction in the amount of opioids prescribed to the general population. I think that the reason that Governor Kasich and many others are looking to further that effort uh, to, to kind of further restrict the, the prescriptions going out is that despite all of these great efforts I described, we haven't gotten the necessary reductions uh, that we, we think are um, appropriate. What's more complicated about that is we know that as the number of um, prescription opioids in the population has gone down, the, the utilization of illicit opioids, heroin, fentanyl, et cetera, as we've been discussing, has actually gone up and so has the mortality. So it, it's not as easy as just, quote, shutting off the faucet, which some people think is the case because they don't understand how strongly a person can be addicted to opioids. Um, and so it's, it's not a just, and the governor knows this, it's not just one factor that needs to be addressed, not just the opioid prescribing. But I, I do agree we need to continue efforts uh, to reduce broadly the prescribing of uh, uh, opioids to the population. Yeah, and that's a really good point. Just shutting off the faucet isn't going to eliminate the problem. And I think we have a, a parallel to draw on, and that's the pill mills. What happened when we shut down the pill mills? Uh, people continued using uh, either, you know, illicitly bought prescription opioids or shifted to, um, you know, illicit heroin. And yeah, a big shift to heroin. Sure, absolutely. Right. Let's go back. I want to talk just a little bit about harm reduction. And uh, I want to uh, revisit those test strips. Over in uh, the Bronx, New York, um, they're uh, currently doing a pilot whereby they're utilizing those fentanyl test strips and they're giving them, them out as part of their syringe exchange program. And the preliminary results are this has been very successful. 
What they do is they give these out along with instructions to those users that are interested in testing their heroin prior to use. And they also provide for them a survey. And they ask them to complete the survey and bring it back. And the results that they've gotten have been kind of uh, uh, encouraging, I guess I, I would say, because in their neighborhood, they found that users are about 10 times more likely to change their use practices when they come back with a, a positive result for, fer for fentanyl in their heroin. So um, is this something as part of a harm reduction program that you could see expanding in our country? Absolutely. I think harm reduction programs such as uh, needle exchanges or um, other names that they go by uh, are, are wonderful things. I think they're necessary for the reduction of, uh, of infectious disease spread, of course, uh, but also an opportunity to intervene on patients who are in active addiction um, and provide them resources, and that can include the information in, in fentanyl test strips, as an example. Um, as I described, we, we believe that there is benefit in giving that information to the patients with active opioid use disorder, and that, to your point, they will change their uses habits um, and potentially uh, even seek treatment, which, of course, is the ultimate goal. Well, doctor, I want to thank you for your time today. This has been really informative. What final thoughts would you like to share with our listeners? Final thoughts would be the opioid epidemic con continues to worsen. But I ask that everyone looks at all the positive efforts that have been made by many individuals across the state of Ohio as well as the country uh, so far as naloxone distribution and those programs have been saving lives insofar as expansion of, of harm reduction, other harm reduction measures such as needle exchanges. And I think that you know, many agencies like my own have really been spending many hours you know, a week over the past several years growing treatment capacity using evidence-based uh, evidence modalities uh, such as medication-assisted treatment. So despite the fact that the reporting is that things are getting worse, I think when you, you look at all the efforts that have been made, we are making a difference and I'm hopeful uh, that we're going to continue to see improvements um, over the next couple of years. Before we sign off, uh, since you mentioned it, I do want to take a minute and talk about your experiences with uh, medication-assisted treatment and uh, specifically its effectiveness versus abstinence. Because as you sure. know, that's an ongoing debate and you have some, I, I don't know what you'd call them, purists that really believe abstinence is the only way. And so uh, I'd really like to hear your comments and have you weigh in on that. Absolutely, I'm happy to. Um, as I've presented many times over the past year or two, the amount of solid scientific evidence that points out how effective medication-assisted treatment is is now overwhelming. So although I hear you and I agree that People often say there's still a debate. I would actually disagree with that statement entirely. At this point, I believe there is no debate. Um, if you look at the volume of patients treated with, with MAT, with medication-assisted treatment, including methadone and buprenorphine, uh, and to some extent with Vivitrol, I am confident in saying that anyone who does not at least offer a medication-assisted treatment option for opioid use disorder is, not, is, is uh, in danger of being 
considered for malpractice. Wow, that's pretty strong. I feel that strongly about it after thoroughly reading the evidence across many years. Uh, I trained originally as an emergency medicine physician at an academic institution where we were taught to evaluate medical evidence very carefully. And, and after doing so um, repeatedly, and new studies coming out all the time reconfirming what I believe, at this time not offering medication-assisted treatment for opioid use disorder is malpractice. And why do you put, to some extent, in relation to Vivitrol? Just too new? It is. Uh, so, you know, again, when you're, when you're literally looking at the depth and the breadth of the evidence for medication-assisted treatment, you, you have very strong evidence over a very long time for methadone and buprenorphine. Um, and because Vivitrol is a newer medication, we just don't have that breadth of evidence. The evidence that's out there today is reasonably positive, um, but it, it's just not it's not the same volume, uh, and we hope to have, by the way, uh, I believe there's a head-to-head -head trial coming out from NIDA uh, for Vivitrol versus buprenorphine fairly shortly, but today the evidence is overwhelmingly positive for methadone and buprenorphine and positive for Vivitrol, but not to the same extent. Very good. Well, once again, doctor, thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate your time and your, con your uh, comments. Absolutely. Happy to, t uh, to talk to you and appreciate the invite. We've been visiting today with Dr. Ryan, who is uh, with the University of Cincinnati Emergency Medicine. He's the president and CMO of Brightview Treatment Centers, and he's also the president of the Ohio Society of Addiction Medicine, and he's making a difference in the opioid epidemic. My name is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.